I suspect you know these words. You can't always get what you want. But if you try sometimes, you just might find you get what you need. You know the song. I looked it up in our hymnal. I can't find it there anywhere. It's probably the first time you've heard from Mick Jagger on, on a Sunday morning at First Community Church, but, but even Mick sometimes can proclaim things that are true for us. You can't always get what you want, but if you try sometimes, you just might find, you just might, you just might find that you get what you need. It, written in between the lines of those lyrics is the very idea of hope. Sometimes you don't get what you want in life. Sometimes it's because of some dumb thing you've done. Sometimes life is just hard, terrible, mean, unfair. But if you try, especially within a community of faith, in a church like ours, you just might find you get what you need. When there's a place, when there's a church like this one that will, will embrace you and hold you and, and take you forward knowing, knowing that that is not the end of the story. The Apostle Paul understood this basic truth. He, he has a little more theological skill than, than Mick Jagger, but they're basically working the same idea. Suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope, and hope does not disappoint. Hope does not disappoint. In other words, failure, suffering, even fear, if we're able to name it honestly and face it, all of these things can be, rather than stumbling blocks, stepping stones down the pathway named hope to the future that God has set before you and before me. It's John Ortberg, the great preacher, who says, the church is in the hope business. He's right. Our calling, our challenge, our passion, our clear conviction is to be a place where hope is alive and real. The church is called to be there to be with you when you don't get what you want. The church is called to be there when life is unfair or hope, hopeless. The church brings with it a, a hopefulness that is nurtured and strengthened by what Eugene Peterson calls the wide open spaces of God's grace. It's as though the church is invited, rather really even challenged, to go into that wide open space and pitch its tent there, put its roots down and say, here, in the field of grace, we're going to discover again this great idea of hope. Uh, I titled this new series that we begin today, Conspiracy of Hope, after a concert tour by U2 back in the 1980s. Conspiracy, I know, has a negative connotation. It, it, it implies a group of people working together in secret behind closed doors to come up with a plan that usually has evil or wrongful intent. But I played with that word a little bit, and I liked the idea of a church being a group of people behind closed doors who work together, not for evil, but for, for hope, for new life, for, for changing the world one, one person, one day at a time. See, I, I think the church is at its best when hope guides us in all that we do. And so I, I dove a little more into that word conspiracy, and I looked up conspire and went back to the Latin root. It literally means, to conspire means to Breathe together. And then I knew, that's what I want to call this series. We're, we're called to breathe together, to conspire together, to bring hope into the world. I've seen this firsthand. Maybe you have too. Several years ago, I was invited to be the theologian in residence at the Riverside Christian Church 
in a little town of Sweet Home, Oregon. If you've been out in that part of the world, Sweet Home's about, oh, halfway between Eugene in the south and Portland in the north, nestled up against the Cascade Mountains. Beautiful, be beautiful setting there. <clears throat> they invited me to come and preach on a Sunday morning and then to give a series of lectures on Monday, Tuesday, and, and Wednesday night uh, after that Sunday morning experience. Riverside Christian was founded by my friend Skip Stock. Skip was the coolest youth minister I knew when I was growing up in Southern California. He wasn't at my church, but I saw him every year at church camp in the summer, and then at midwinter camp, and all, a lot of times in the summer, his youth group and my youth group would get together, and we'd go to the beach and hang out, and I, I just, I, when I was 13, 14, 15 years old, I wanted to be Skip when I grew up. He was the coolest guy out there. And he served in that role for several years until he was needed back home, and he went back home to Sweet Home, where he's from. And he took over the lumber business for his family. There in that, in that business, they, they joined another church. He wasn't the pastor. He just joined the church. Weren't real happy because the church was a lot about judgmentalism and punishment and finger pointing, and he didn't like that. And he tried a couple of their churches. Well, they couldn't find a church where grace was spoken, and so they founded a church. They decided to start the Riverside Christian Church. <clears throat> Skip had a plane as a part of his business. He sold the plane. He took the hangar, and he converted it into a church building. They bought a bunch of chairs in. They made, they made their own roughly hewn communion table that they put up at the center of the, of the hangar, which was now their church. And then he and his friends went out into the streets, went out into all their connections, the schools and businesses, everywhere they could, and they invited anyone and everyone. And when I got there to preach a few years after they'd founded it, it was this amazing collection of folks on a Sunday morning in a hangar of all places from all kinds of backgrounds, addicts and school teachers alcoholics and bankers, ex-convicts and grandmothers. What a, what a fascinating place it was. This, this, little, this little hangar where, where we were meeting for, where they were meeting for their, their worship uh, had these two, you know, as you would imagine, a hangar has these two huge doors behind where the preacher preached from. And so once in a while, if the weather was nice, like on a day like this, and the day I was preaching there, they'd open up those hangar doors. And so the, the, literally the wall of the church would be wide open space with the Cascade Mountains in the distance. They opened them up right before I got up to preach. I swear, no one listened to me for at least 10 minutes. <clears throat> but it was, a, it was an amazing, amazing day. I was so fired up to be there, so excited to, to preach to them. And I basically said to them, I'm here to tell you this. The one purpose, the one purpose of God is to let you know that God loves you right now as you are. That is the single purpose of God. Now, you can go and live your life and do whatever you want to do, but don't, don't forget don't forget that God already loves you, and you can live your life in the light of that love, or you can live it however. But God's love is given to you and to the world. I preached that morning for about 45 minutes. Um, I'm not going to do that today. Don't worry. But I was so excited and so into it. And then at the end of the service, they took communion in that church every Sunday. At the end of the service, this young girl, 15, 16 years old, dressed in just a sweatshirt, a pair of jeans, she came down the aisle and she whispered to my friend Skip who had invited me to be there in his church and she said, I, I want to be baptized. Skip announced it. The congregation broke out in applause and then I looked around and, and I wondered, well, where do they do the baptisms? And Skip said, we're going to do the baptism as soon as the benediction is spoken. I couldn't see a baptistry. They don't do baptism in that church by sprinkling. They do it with immersion where the person is taken into a tank and pulled out. But no, the benediction was spoken. The whole church got up. I just kind of followed the crowd. We walked about 200 yards down the bank to the river, Riverside Christian Church. We walked down to the river, and, and the associate minister, he waded fully dressed right into the river. 
And then he called the young girl to come out so she could be baptized and she still had on her sweatshirt and jeans and she waited fully clothed right out in the middle of the river. Somebody called out from the congregation and said, be sure you baptize her upstream. <laughs> Think about that. If you're baptized downstream, it, it could be bad. I, it was, it was such, a, such a beautiful experience. Well, the next day, they'd given me pretty much my days free to do whatever I wanted, so I brought some books, read a little bit that morning, went for a run, and then decided to have a late morning breakfast. I went to this diner. I was in there all by myself, getting ready for my speech, my lecture that night. When this man came walking in, I recognized him from church, big burly guy, dressed in leather from head to toe, long hair, big bushy beard. He came walking right over to where I was seated, sat down with me, pulled up, opened his coat, took out this huge knife that apparently he didn't want sitting there with him, and he set it on the table and he said, Preacher, do you mind if I sit here? <laughs> I said, no, please, pull, pull up a chair. You're, you're already there. And then he told me a story. He said, I, I've lived a rough life. I did some bad things. Three years ago, I was in prison when your friend Skip came to see me. And he sat across from me in that prison, and he looked right at me, and he said, Matthew, you've done some dumb things. But you've got to decide, how are you going to live your life now? Because God already loves you, and you can live your life now in light of that love, or you can just go on messing up. But what are you going to do? Matthew told me he was out a year later, and he started coming to church. He said, preacher, I'm not sure I believe in God. But every day I'm at that church, those people love me. Every day I run into one of them in town at a, at a store, at a restaurant, they love me. If that's what it means to be a Christian, then I'm in. In fact, he said, I'm even starting to believe there might be a God. Do you, do you hear the hopefulness in that story? Did you hear what he said? I'm starting to believe there might even be a God. Where did he find his faith? It was in a community of faith that reached out to him with love, that pitched its, taint, its, its tent in the wide open space of God's grace. Where else would you rather be found? The power of that church is in their willingness to travel down together, whoever you are, wherever you may be from or wherever you may be going, toward the road named Hope. It's an amazing thing when a church works like that. Frederick Buechner, the great writer, says, Hope stands up to its knees in the past and keeps its eyes on the future. Hear the power in that statement. It stands in its knees, up to its knees in the past, while keeping its eyes in the future. I read that last week while working on this sermon, and I just, I, I just knew that's First Community Church. That's who we are. That's who you've been throughout your history. We have this marvelous past, and that past has been but prelude, propelling us into the new future that we stand before even now. Last week, Deb Lindsay, who was also out in Oregon, taking care of some family business, sent me a text from something that she'd read. Faith is a footbridge that you don't know will hold you up over the chasm until you're forced to walk out onto it. Faith is a footbridge that you don't know is going to hold you until you take that step. There's great truth there. Tremendous truth. Hope begins when we take that step in faith. Now, we also find that hope begins when you learn to pay attention. I mean, to pay attention to the ones you care about the most. Have you noticed sometimes in your family relationships the people you care for the most you almost take for granted? Think, think about what would happen if every time you're in a conversation with someone you care about, if you leaned in, listened, and absorbed 
in your very soul what it was they're saying to you. In fact, there was some research done a few years ago. A, a group of students were, were told that there's going to be a signal given while your professor is giving the lecture, and we want you to, to sit up and pay attention when that signal is given. Another signal will be given, and you'll go back into slouching. So they go into their class. The professor has no idea this has been set up this way. The professor begins his lecture. It's a dull, boring, monotone. He's just going through his notes, flipping across his pages. And then all of a sudden, on a, on a predetermined signal, all the students sit up. They had been slouching. They hadn't been paying attention, but now they sit up. They lean in. They make eye contact with the professor. They start taking copious notes. And, all, and the same thing, when that happens, his lecture gets better. He stands up straighter. He starts making hand gestures. He kind of gets into his speech a little bit, into his lecture a little bit, and he starts going on and on about all these different things. He gets excited, and then all of a sudden, another signal comes, and the students go back to slouching. And they look down, and they doodle on their page. They don't take notes. And sure enough, the professor, same thing happens to him. He goes back to the monotone, the boring presentation of the lecture. Now, there's a couple of lessons to learn here. When the students were leaning in and paying attention, the lecture was good. So what the, the first lesson is this. If you want me to be a good preacher, you need to lean in and listen carefully. <laughs> it's on you, not on me. That's the way it works. The second lesson is this. Think about what that would mean for the ones you care about the most. Literally, to lean in, to make eye contact, to pay attention. I can't tell you how many people I've seen in my office over the years, couples whose relationship was falling apart. Almost every one of them, many of them said, oh, he just doesn't pay attention. She just doesn't notice. Think of what would happen. Think of the hope you could find. In fact, there's, there's been some similar research done on, on, on cell phones. You probably know, you probably know if you're sitting there with your cell phone and you're looking out at your cell phone and, 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 and texting somebody or checking something or looking at the, the Dow Jones averages or whatever it is you do on your cell phone, you're not really engaged with the other person. That's kind of obvious. Doesn't need a, we don't need a scientist to tell us that. But research has also shown that if you're out to lunch with somebody and one of you, even just one of you, sets your phone on the table, never looks at it, never checks it, just the act of putting it on the table changes the depth and the quality of the conversation. The hope is found when the church learns to pay attention to each other and to the world, to the deep needs of the world. Paul's letter to the church in Rome is not bringing up a new idea. The issues of suffering, endurance, and hope can be found throughout the Bible from Genesis to, to Revelation. In fact, one of my favorite stories is the story of the prophet named Hosea. He lived 750 years before Jesus. Hosea was known as a, a fire and brimstone preacher. He was one whose favorite title was turn or burn. He loved to shake his fist and point his fingers and, and really tell people, if you don't get your, your act right, man, you're going to be punished forever. And then he fell in love with a woman named Gomer. That was her name. She'd had a wild lifestyle. You can imagine what that means. And it was actually wilder than that. She was pretty wild. They had three kids, though. Kind of settled into a nice routine. And then out of the blue, she left them. Hard to say what happened, but most people think she went back to that old lifestyle, that wild behavior. She was unfaithful to him. But something happened inside Hosea's soul. He didn't get angry. He didn't shake his fists. He didn't point his fingers. He didn't demand that she be punished. He realized, he recognized that his heart was breaking, and he still loved her. He, he wanted her back. He wanted nothing more 
than for her to return, to love him, to continue their relationship. And in that experience, he realized he could hear the voice of God somehow speaking to his mind, to his heart, to his soul, saying, Hosea, as much as you love your wife, I too love Israel. I too love my people even when they go astray, even when they run the opposite direction from me, even when they're full of failures and, and they make silly mistakes, I still love them and desire them. And Hosea then wrote these words. He said, God is saying to you, how can I give you up? How can I hand you over? You're my child, my loved one. I love you. I love you. This is the hopeful work of the church. We are called to love each other fiercely while proclaiming this same love of God for the world. This is the business of the church, but sometimes, sometimes we let fear get in our way. Sometimes we, we fail to embrace the life that's been given to us. Sometimes we're just afraid to become vulnerable as individuals and even as a congregation because to do so is to take a risk. And so sometimes that fear is so great we end up choosing disappointment as a lifestyle. Those aren't my words, those are the words of Brene Brown. Too often we choose, she says in her research, disappointment as a lifestyle. She did a study once where she brought in hundreds of folks to watch a film. It was a Hollywood quality film. Sat down in the theater, gave them all a clipboard, piece of paper on that clipboard and a pencil and said, now we want you to watch this scene as it opens and then we're gonna stop the film and ask you to write what happens next. So the film begins. It's a winding country road. Snow is gently falling. As, this, as the scene progresses, a car appears. It's a car full of a family, a dad and a mom, a little boy and a little girl in the back seat. You can tell by the way they're dressed that they're getting ready for some kind of a Christmas party. And one of the, one of the kids says, I can't wait to see Grandma. They're on their way to see Grandma for, for Christmas Eve. Dad turns on the radio, and it's Jingle Bells playing, and they all start singing together. And they're just, it's a wonderful scene. They're driving down the road, moonlit night start, the snow gently coming down, and then the, it stops. She says to the crowd, now, take out your clipboard and write down the scene. What happens next? What do you think they write? What do most of the people write down? Crash, accident, car wreck. 60% of the people in the room predict that the next scene is going to be a car crash. In fact, another 15% on top of that predict all kinds of weird and wild, mean, ugly stuff. One of them wrote, as the car pulls into grandma's house, a serial killer lurks in the woods. <laughs> Who... Who writes, who thinks like that? <laughs> Brene Brown would say, we do. 75% of us look at a scene like that and we expect something bad's gonna happen. The next shoe's gonna drop. Oh, I, uh, how's your day going? Oh, it's going so far, oh, knock on wood. We, we all seem to have these little things we say we're just so afraid of disappointment that we decide almost to embrace it before it happens. In order for us to be filled with the hope that God wants us to live with, we have to accept our past, our failures, our disappointments, whatever they may be, and allow ourselves to be moved forward in faith. Sometimes it means we have to take a hard path to name the suffering, to endure, to pray for character, knowing that each step takes us closer to hope. There's a marvelous book written by Keith Miller called The Habitation of Dragons. In this, in this book, he tells the story of a support group that he formed, that he created for, 
for folks to get together, you know, once a month to share their stories and talk about their lives. It was people ages, oh, 35 to 50, something like that. Some of them single, some of them married, male and female. They would gather once a month, and they'd been doing this for about a year, and there was one woman in the group, her name was Alice, who was kind of quiet, hadn't said much. She participated. People liked her, but she'd never really gone to that deeper level of sharing, talking about her life, until one day in the group, she said, I'd like to tell you my story. I was abandoned as an infant, left on the door of an orphanage. As I grew, it was obvious that I was not going to be a very attractive little girl, and I kind of had a wild personality and had a hard time getting adopted. The director of the orphanage tried to coach me every time the family would come to see me, but it just wasn't happening. I wanted nothing more, she said, nothing more than for someone to, to, to call mom and dad and my own bedroom and my own place to call, to call home. And then when I was seven, she said, this family came and they interviewed me and the director came in after the interview and said, the family wants to take you home, Alice. And she said, I was so excited. And the director said, now, there's a, there's a three-month period where they can decide not to fully adopt you. So please know. Don't get, oh, no, it's okay. I'm excited. It's going to be fine. It's going to be fine. So she packed her little suitcase. She grabbed her coat. She left with the family. Finally, she had that place she wanted all, all her life. She was there two months when she came home from school opened the door, stepped into the entryway of the house, and there was her suitcase and her coat on top. And it dawned on her, I'm going back. As she's telling this story in the, in, in the support group, the group starts to weep. They start to cry a little bit. And, but Alice goes on, she says, that happened to me seven times before I was 13. At this point, the group is, is crying almost uncontrollably. A, a woman stands up and she starts to walk over to, to tell Alice to give her a hug, to hold her and hold her tightly. And Alice startles the whole group and she says, wait, stop. You need to understand. My past brought me to God. My past brought me to this moment to be with you. It was my past that gave me the relationship with you and God that I've wanted more than anything else throughout my life. What did the Apostle Paul write? Suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope, and hope does not what? Hope does not disappoint. Sisters and brothers, may this universal truth be true for you for me, for all of us.